Hello, and welcome to a very special podcast short. Now, not too long ago, I watched Rambo Last Blood, supposedly the last film in the Rambo First Blood saga. Unlike many of the critics, I really enjoyed it, and I've been thinking about it quite a bit afterwards, to be honest. And as I was thinking about it, I was struck more and more by what each of these films said about America and its foreign policy at the time the film was made. Now, before I go further, I just want to say to those of you who are new to the show, politics and political films are a fascination with me. And I believe there's a political message in most films. And what I'm setting out to discuss here is that the Rambo films are a political reflection of the times in which each was made. To make sense of this strange, random political thoughts that I have, it's a good job Neil's not here, because he'd be giving me grief at this stage. We are fortunate, though, to have Elijah with us tonight. And together, we're going to go through each of these films to see if these theories I have are true, or I am just talking nonsense. Which wouldn't be the first. I'll ignore you, Graham, <laughs> and welcome Elijah to the show. Hi, Elijah, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Sleep deprived as usual, but... I don't know how you cope. I really don't know how you cope. Watch Apocalypse Now, that's how I cope. (laughs) Well, that's set you up perfectly for this discussion then. (laughs) So, you're looking forward to this one? This is something a bit different for us, I think. Yeah, I think it's going to be something really interesting and unique. Yeah, and the plan is we're going to take each film in turn. However, and to give another false start, I want to take a quick look at some of the fascinating links that apply to every film in the series. Obviously, they all star Sylvester Stallone, that's a given. One person in a film series which has lasted almost 40 years is intriguing and has certainly shaped it. Then there's the music, something I always bang on about. The first three were composed by Jerry Goldsmith, who died in 2004. Even though he hasn't been here for the last two, Brian Tyler has done an excellent job incorporating Goldsmith's themes into those latter two films. Now, fun fact... I've actually seen both Jerry Goldsmith and Brian Tyler in concert. Great stuff. Okay, moving on from the fun and rather boring fact. Finally, many such series, such as Rambo, try to broaden their appeal as they develop. In other words, let's take The Expendables, another Stallone thing. As that series went on, it started off fairly hardcore, going for an R or a 15 certificate in the UK. As it becomes successful, they aim to lower the certificate. They went for PG-13 in America or a 12A in the UK. Not Rambo. If anything, it's gone the other way. The violence has got even more hardcore, and it's kept very much to its roots. Again, another thing I respect about these films. So before we continue, Elijah, is there anything you want to add about the overall continuity behind these films? Um, I think one thing that keeps going through the series is that each film discusses an important topic happening in the world. They're not just generic action films. You know, it's not Fast and Furious. They each have a message and they're each dealing with, uh, usually dealing with indigenous peoples or local issues, wherever Rambo's at. And they, they bring into light things that people are either weren't talking about or still don't. You know, a lot of people don't even think about the uh, war in Afghanistan with the Russians or even the resistance that still happened in Vietnam after the war was over with the South or um, the stuff that's happening in uh, Myanmar and Burma. Yeah. Still and each going of the on. films has tried to, to shed a light on that, I think. You can say, yes, these are action films and, and they're categorized as such, but underlying the foundation of each is something quite serious every time. 
Not merely action violence porn like The Expendables. No. Or even The Diehards and, and those sort of films. And I think that's something that we're going to bring out here, that each of these has its own different foundation, but they're equally with merit. So let's dive in. Let's take First Blood. So First Blood, 1982, the film came out. First Blood is actually set in December 1981, and it's about John Rambo. Now, Rambo is a Vietnam veteran, unable to fit in society, and is now essentially a drifter. After receiving some bad news, Rambo walks into the small town of Hope, oh, the irony there, in Washington (laughs) State. The local sheriff sees him as trouble and tries to get him to move on, just not stay in the town. When Rambo refuses to go, he is arrested. Now, this is a bad move by the local sheriff, who soon finds himself involved in a war between him and Rambo. The film is based on the book by the same name, written by David Morrell, and was originally published in 1972. The film rights were sold almost immediately, and it was almost filmed numerous times prior to Stallone getting involved. Paul Newman, Robert De Niro, Nick Nolte, John Travolta, and even Ryan O'Neill were considered for the part of John Rambo in various attempts to get the movie made. Even when it was filmed, a late change had to be made for the part of Trotman. Kirk Douglas was cast, but left the film over the change to the ending. Spoiler alert, Rambo actually dies at the end of the book, and that was the original intention of the film. But when the ending was changed, he walked. Uh, Richard Crenna joined the cast three days before filming started. So let's talk about where this is a reflection of American society of the time, and in particular it's that due to the Vietnam veterans. The character of John Rambo is clearly suffering from post-traumatic stress syndrome, PTSS, and has been unable to fit back into society. PTSS, or as we call it in the UK, PTSD, was only recognised as a condition a couple of years before the film opened. Also, I think this represents what America wanted to do with the Vietnam veteran at the time. It had lost the war and it was now a few years on. And it just wanted to forget about them, wanted to forget about the political world that had gone wrong in the 1970s. They were now the past. So Elijah and Graham, I now open the floor to you for your views before I expand upon my points. I watched them yesterday, both films. I'd I'd seen them before, but I watched them both again yesterday. And I think they're still very valid. They they seem to have retained a validity that most of the other, and we keep going back to the Expendables, it's an easy and cheap shot to make. I think Rambo's a very, very grounded character and... I liked the first one. I, I thought the violence in the uh, the fourth one, the um, the actual one called just Rambo, uh, was quite extreme, and it, and it was it was a hard watch. But I liked the story. I thought the story was good. I thought the characterization was good. But as a social allegory, I think the outsider or the loner is a constant movie trope, but I liked this in that he was a man dealing with his own inner demons. And then these other people would come in and uh, cause him to go into conflict with these inner demons by causing him to get into impossible situations. They're both nicely crafted films. I like. Okay. Your thoughts on First Blood, Elijah, just before I dive into a a little bit uh, of history? Yeah, my wife's grandfather is a Vietnam veteran. He was a, a Marine. And he was actually there before the war was officially called a, a war or conflict. He was part of Operation Starlight. And uh, he was actually picked up out of a war zone. Like they just finished a firefight and his 13 months were up. And the medic helicopter came down, picked up the wounded. 
and uh, the gunships or the, the helicopters with the, the weapons on it called out his name and said, you know, we're going to land for five seconds and then we're going. You better be on here or you're, never, you're not leaving. Booked it across the field and took off his flak jacket, threw it on and sat on it because everyone was afraid of getting, you know, shot up the butt. Yeah. Something Apocalypse and Now picks just, up on that, isn't it? Yeah. I thought that was hilarious when I when I saw that. Within 24 hours, he had been picked up from from a war zone and was dropped in the in the U.S. One of the things, and obviously this is before First Blood starts, but but one of the things you constantly get about the Vietnam War is that it was aimless. Nobody really knew what was going on, what people were fighting for over there. That's certainly the reflection you get watching documentaries and and looking at films and reading books about it. Was that his view mm-hmm. of it, or did he have a very clear purpose while he was there? When they were there, I mean, his he says that his clear purpose essentially was there was a target in front of me, and I killed them. He was trained to, to never see the Viet Cong as human, just as the enemy that needed to be killed. And so that's that's what he did. They were given objectives in certain battles, but when the war finally you know really ramped up, and he was there from 65 or 66, and came out. So, so this stuff happened even before, you know, Kurtz from Apocalypse Now was in the, in, involved in the war. Uh, before the Tet Offensive as, as um, well. Yeah. And this was incredibly early on. And they, the, his Marine Division, they I mean, they had incredible success when they had an objective to fulfill, yeah. when they had a place to go, when they were pointed in a direction, you know, they, they fulfilled that objective. But, you know, with the changing political administrations and the, uh, the political turmoil happening in, in the U.S., as well as the cultural one, it seemed like there were pressures on to do something, but there's also pressure to not do something or not do anything. So he ended up with a weird, crappy mixture of the worst of both worlds. That's incredible. So let's talk about, in First Blood, the character of John Rambo has been through that in Vietnam. He's come home and find it difficult to come in. Now, about a year before I saw First Blood, I watched a TV documentary about Vietnam veterans who couldn't integrate back into society, and they lived in encampments in woods around America and some in Canada as well. And when researching to try and find out details of that documentary, which I couldn't track down, unfortunately, I did come across an incredible article from the New York Times archive from the mid-90s for Vietnam veterans, Florida Wood is home. It talks about their life in Broward County in Florida and their battles with local law enforcement. In a way, it parallels some of the things in First Blood, but doesn't build up to this constant war that John Rambo creates with the local Sheriff Teagle, but it always seems to be close. And there's about 50 to 100 people in this community at the time. I don't know if that community is still there now, 25 years later, or or whether it's not. I guess that focuses on the difficulty they had integrating back when they came home. If you don't mind me asking, Elijah, for your relative, did he have that problem or it just wasn't an issue? I won't say he had as many problems as people did later on in the war, because uh, you know it was in the mid '60s, so he hadn't right. fully gone into the that era where everything was was crazy. And he came back in '66. He was given a few weeks leave, and he he knew they were going to call him back. And uh, in his words, he said, "I wasn't going to survive another tour of duty," so he got married. Ah, right. And so he and my uh, grandmother-in-law have been together for over 50 years. He denies, you know, any PTSD. But um, from what I can tell from what his my grandmother-in-law has said, you know, you still have the residual effects from war. And he dealt with it. He's a very practical person. He didn't let it overcome him. But he, there are stories 
of people like him, you know, waking up and, you know, they're choking a spouse or beating something because they're re- recreating, you know, the war in their heads, as it were. He didn't really talk about the war. He didn't talk about his experiences very often. And he struggled with it until the mid 80s, around the time that Rambo was released, where he felt like his service was accepted. Yeah. They were in a, a, a revival meeting by a former Vietnam vet who had a white phosphorus grenade blow up in his hand. It was incendiary and it melted half his body. That guy ended up coming back. And as he's in the, uh, the hospital, he's seeing all these late women come in and, you know, drop their rings off with their husbands or their fiancés and leave them. And his wife came in and, you know, gave him a big kiss on the one part of his mouth that was still there. And now they've been married for a long time. He's ministered to Vietnam vets for years, you know, trying to let them know that we're grateful and that they're cherished and loved. And he had the people stand up or he had uh, my grandfather and other Vietnam vets stand up and everyone in this meeting, you know, uh, applaud them. And that I think was, from what I understand, was a big turning point for him. It's an interesting point, isn't it, really, that these were the best trained soldiers that the American forces had ever trained. And they'd learned a lot from the Second World War and from Korea as well. And then they, they trained these people well. They sent them off to fight. And then behind their backs, the political and the social world changed. So they dropped out of society to go and fight for their country. And then they came back to a different country almost. Your heart goes out to these guys because they go off. They are doing what they have been trained to do and what they believe in. But all the other stuff behind their backs is just changed. When you look at Rambo and you look at how he feels dislocated from society, it all makes sense. How old was your uh, grandfather-in-law when he was in Vietnam? Because the other thing about Vietnam was the soldiers were very, very young. You know, there's the um, the famous song about um, that they were all an average age of 19. Um, uh, he was, I think he was 22 when he went, but he volunteered. When, uh, ah, right, he okay. knew the war was starting and he figured that there would be a draft like there'd been for World War II and all that. And so he decided he was going to join the baddest group there was because if he was going to survive, he wanted to be with the best. And so while he was over there, they had draftees coming in and all the guys who volunteered, you know, treated them as second class Marines because they knew what they were getting themselves into while everyone else was just kind of shoved into a the melting pot or the, the grinder, as it were. That's an interesting point, isn't it? So not that he wanted to be there, but he had volunteered and he was, you know, he saw this as something he was going to do. A lot of the other Vietnam vets were just thrown in there against their wills almost. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I'd forgotten yeah, that. They were just bodies thrown in the meat grinder that the the war was. And it always seems to have this, and I go back to this lack of purpose. And this is quite interesting with this. You've got, while they were over there, the TV and the representation on the news, because no war in history was as well covered at the time as Vietnam. Every media in the world learned from that. They would never give such blanket coverage. And yet the media portrayed it as an unwinnable war. Yeah, They portrayed it as an unwelcome war. So you've got the media against you. Ultimately, you lose the war because it's, you know, in 1973, the ceasefire is agreed and everybody pulls out. So you've got that double thing coming in. And one of the things I researched on this, which I found quite interesting, is a lot of people who were against the war were very much middle-class students. They marched and rioted against yep. the war. But it's the working classes who had to go over there, fight it, come back, and be treated like dirt 
by these people who, in their eyes, yes, they were getting drafted, not all were, but they were over there doing a job for the American people. It's no wonder mm-hmm. so many people crashed. Yeah. Not to mention all the drugs and Agent Orange and all the other crap that they were put yeah. through. And the VA here is just a nightmare. It's a travesty how badly we treat our, our veterans' uh, medical care. Hasn't things improved under Trump, though? I, I thought that was one of the things he did sort out. It's a big push to, to fix the VA. I don't know if it's been fixed. I do know that my grandfather-in-law made sure he had a job where he, when he retired, he had good had medical insurance, but he's never used the VA. He refuses to. Is that out of pride or he just didn't think it's up to the job? He doesn't believe it's up for the job. And most veterans that I know hate the VA, especially the older older veterans. The Korean v- veterans and our Second World War and things like that. What about Nick? So yeah. Graham's son-in-law as well, he, he was in the forces, wasn't he? Yeah, he was in the Navy though. So he was sat off, off the shore launching cruise missiles and things like that. And he's in IT, so he's not front line. Although he did get a medal for setting up some networks on the beach. Yeah, he set up some networks on the beach and because he had his, his boots on the ground, he got a medal. But that, again, is another conflict where, technically, we won. You can look at the politics of it on the Bush player stuff. Technically, we mm-hmm. won. Yeah. And that makes a big, big difference when you're looking at these sort of things. It seemed that there were objectives to it. Yes. You can't win something if you don't know what you're winning. You can't defeat an enemy if you don't know what you're fighting. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and there were very clear lines as to how far you could go, what you were trying to do. And that's an interesting point, because I think the politicians learned from Vietnam. So the next conflict you go into, you have clear objectives, although we all laughed at Bush saying mission accomplished while they were still in these war zones for three or four years after he said mission accomplished. But yeah, you had to have an end. You had to have a, a focus point. You had to say, right, it's over. We've done it. We've won. Otherwise, things just fester and become cancerous, as they did with the Vietnam vets coming back. Yeah. And that comes back to a stat. They estimate 800,000 suffered from some form of PTSS. There was no support, and people looked down on them. Again, there's an estimate that more than 56,000 committed suicide. More people killed themselves than actually died in the war. And that's Morel's ending to yeah. to, to his book, First Blood. Mm. John Rambo character commits suicide. So, so many of these veterans, they came back and they had no support structure. Yes, I mean, for years, the media is just harping and saying that the war is evil, what we're doing is evil, our soldiers are bad. And even people unwittingly, you know, whatever, she's a bad word in my grandfather-in-law's house, she allowed herself to be manipulated by their media and used against the troops. I missed the name. Is that Jane Fonda? Yeah, Jane Fonda. Okay, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, she's she's a bad word at their house. Yeah, she got arrested again the other day. Discussing climate change or something? Yes, it yeah, was. Yeah, for climate change, yeah. Yeah. Isn't it... Isn't it Yay, in- we're, we're arresting elderly people. Yes. Isn't it interesting, <sighs> though, that, you know, the government defines the war, the government defines the objectives, the soldiers are just cogs in the wheel. They go and do the job, and then they get the blame. It's just like, mm-hmm. hang on a minute, whoa, who set this up? You know, Winston Churchill once said that war is the complete and utter failure of politics. You only get into a war when all of the political avenues have failed. And yet, the, here were these soldiers in, in a war, 
and the politicians seem to escape it. The politicians weren't the weren't the face of the war. It was the soldiers. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that's they a were good the point. ones on the documentaries. They were the ones on the footage that people were seeing coming into their homes. Now, one of the things I found out when I was researching some more things about the soldiers is, you know, there, there's that whole stories of men being spit on. And a lot of people thought it was just a myth. And so some people did some research on it. They can confirm that it, it happened. It may not have been nearly as widespread as, as people made it sound. But it wasn't just the hippies. It was people on the street, random older citizens. And Vietnam vets were viewed almost as monsters. So, you, know, you watch Apocalypse Now and you watch as Shane's character just caps that poor woman in the boat. You're like, oh, these men are monsters. And that's how they were portrayed. And so you got these men who are now seen by society as being vile, evil, transients. They don't have families or their families have rejected them or they, they don't get married or they, if they're not able to reintegrate themselves into society in some way, they end up being completely broken. And thankfully, my grandfather-in-law, you know, he married, he had his family. He ended up getting, uh, he was in the military for a few more years and then started working, diving into, uh, he, he became a, a Christian later on. His faith also helped push him through, and most people didn't have that. We come down to two points there, which I think are absolutely fascinating. The way that you know the Vietnam veterans were looked down on, and they were looked down on, as you say, by the people on the street, but also the Vietnam vets. One of the most subtle aspects of First Blood, and it's I had to read up on it to pick up on it. I didn't see it. Is that Teasel, the sheriff, is a Korean vet? It's only a cutaway shot of a Korean medal. Of course, the Korean soldiers, the Korean veterans, look down on the Vietnam vets, yeah. uh, as you say, Elijah, for the things that they perceived that they were doing over there. And then mm-hmm. I come back to this class thing. I, I'm absolutely fascinated to see this class situation in America. I expect it in this country because yeah. we're run by these sort of morons. But I don't expect to see it in America. And yet there is this middle class and middle class students that were causing all of this stop the war, yeah. we hate everything about it, as you say, spitting on, on veterans, not only them, but encouraging others to do it, I find incredible, really quite shocking. Well, back then, you know, if you were going to go to college, you had to pay your way through if you were uh, a working class. And so that was really difficult to do. So it was mostly, you know, middle-class people that were going to these universities. They were the ones that were the most educated. My grandfather-in-law was working class. He went to war and ended up having a, a good career, but I don't believe he ever, ever went to university. So what we spoke up to now is everything behind First Blood, you know, where this could come from, where this character could be. Let's talk a little bit about the film. Now we've seen the context of how it works. And what's interesting with Rambo is it was the end of a chain or a sequence of films if you like, the first theme of film that came out of Vietnam after it ended was the damaged Vietnam veteran. So you look at films like particularly The Deer Hunter, yep. which won the awards, Rolling Thunder with William Devane, and again, another De Niro and Taxi Driver, Who'll Stop the Rain with Nick Nolte, another Oscar winner coming home with Jane Fonda, dare we mention her name, but with Bruce Dern and John Voight. And they all had this damaged Vietnam veteran john rambo in essence continued that role that type of character but i think what first blood did it had that background that culture background if you like that we've discussed 
that a lot of these other films didn't have. And I think First Blood was the end of that cycle. A new cycle started up after it, and we'll talk about that more when we get into First Blood Part 2. When you first see John Rambo come onto screen, he's lost, he's, he's looking for a friend, the friend had died from a cancer, from an Agent Orange type thing. Again, this realisation they'd brought Vietnam, the poison, back with them. And then he goes into the town where the sheriff makes his life hell. And then essentially, he recreates Vietnam. When he's out in the wild, he knows how to survive. He's living off the land like the Viet Cong. He could have killed them all. And he's trying to say to them, look, I don't want this. I I want to be left alone. But in doing so, again, he recreates Vietnam, but in much smaller scale. And I thought those sequences were, were really, really good. I, I think, um, well, for one, the redhead in this film was not the villain. So kudos to them. <laughs> I mean, he went on to be a big star. That's David Caruso. He was went on to be a big star. Really? Yeah. I don't know. I can't remember if I, what I've seen him in. He was in, I never thought I'd say what I'm about to say. I'm missing Neil. Because he would normally have... <laughs> He, he would have the, the thing open and he would check it. He was also in a film called Kiss of Death, but this is uh, with Nicolas Cage. Oh, God, yes. Nicolas Cage at Half Cage in that. First, but, yeah, okay. But he was in uh, um, CSI, wasn't he? CSI, yeah. He was the first star of CSI. Um, okay. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, okay, now I recognize him. Yeah. So, yeah. So CSI Miami. I'm glad you picked that up because... He almost was the conscience, didn't he? He realized that there's a problem with John Rambo, that he was suffering this PTSS. And he was trying to, to get him all to scale down, even after you know one of the villains of the piece is killed, the only death you see on film. And even then, he's trying to say, we need to calm this down. But nobody listens to him. The redhead was the voice of reason. You are right, Elijah. Yeah, there are so few rays of hope for redheads in cinema. I'm taking this one. I'll take anything I can get. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And again, when they set, so so going on in the film, they then set the National Guard on him, who had probably never seen any real action whatsoever against a trained killer. Again, they're out of their depth, and all they want to do is this missile or this gun is bigger than that one. I want to fire it. <laughs> I have uh, a lot of friends that are in the National Guard, and while the majority of them don't have a whole lot of action, I have met some who are, you know, they're vets who came in, they just decided to go back into it. But the the ones in the film were definitely amateurs. I had no idea what they were doing. Yeah. Like, see. oh, that's a bazooka. Let's use that. <laughs> Who's in charge of the National Guard? Are they state level or are they federal? Um, state, usually. Yeah, by the time you get to the end of that final confrontation, he's almost confessing his sins or confessing everything to the Troutman character, to Richard Greener. To be fair, I had to watch it three, four times to understand everything Stallone was saying. It isn't the easiest bit to listen to. But when you get that speech, it's it's really good. That, that speech is great. And, yeah, I, I watched that with the subtitles. So yeah. that, that's easier. <laughs> Yeah, I think when I when that scene came on, I I was reminded like, holy crap, he can act. And again, it's not a happy ending. Okay, he doesn't commit suicide, which is the original ending, and that was filmed, by the way. It is if you look around on DVD and Blu-ray, you can find it as an extra. But he goes to prison. They're not addressing the concerns that this character has. He will be locked away. It doesn't have 
a happy ending. But then most of these that Vietnam cycle of films, again, you look at the deer hunter, you look at who'll stop the rain. They're not happy ending movies. And it's not, there's no justice, really. No. When you look at it, he goes into town. It's a, a thing about his freedoms. You know, he, he, he doesn't believe that the, he thinks the, um, the sheriff is in pack, you know, freedom to move around is, is those sorts of rights. And then they're the one, they're aggressors and he's just defending himself. And yet it all escalates out and he's the only one who ends up paying the price. It's quite a moral story, really. Oh. And I don't th- think you could make that film today. And the reason for that, and you look at all of those films, because they're all downbeat, because the problem isn't solvable and, and unless you want to invest a huge amount of money in, in dealing with you know, these damaged psyches. There is no other way out of this. You know, It has to be a downbeat ending. And it's the same for the, the way the guys come together at the end of The Deer Hunter trying to celebrate a lost friend, but they've clearly lost something about themselves and their country. Death of Nick Nolte and Who'll Stop the Rain and the arrest and imprisonment of Sylvester Stallone in, in First Blood. They're not dealing with the problem. No. They're either killing it or locking it away. You want to put it behind closed doors, act like it doesn't exist. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And that was the whole thing yeah. about where we were. The government is very good at that. Yeah, and, and as is ours, unfortunately. Yeah. All governments, it's, 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 their, yeah. it's their, one yeah. suit, their one mutant power. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, the one thing that they're actually good at is pretending like they, they're not the cause of their own of the problems that are going on. We have a huge problem over here. I assume you will have the same ex-soldiers, ex-military living on the streets. They can't, they can't integrate. Yeah, The film coming out next year, Fulton Square, which we were on the set of, deals with that theme. It's something that's, that's just not addressed in this country at all. We haven't really moved forward from the original Rambo. I just watched the, that film, Leave No Trace, about um, an Afghan vet who comes back and he can't deal with his struggles with PTSD, as we'd call it in the UK, or PTSS. And he hides in the forests in Oregon with his daughter uh, and then things go wrong. But even in the end of that, spoiler alert, and this is a big spoiler, he never recovers. He goes back to the forest and his daughter manages to reintegrate, but he cannot do it and he cannot be around people. So there's a there's a 2015-16 film and it's it's the same it's the same problem. I know of, of guys who are vets and they just, they live out by themselves. They, they uh, don't show up except for maybe a couple of family events a year. And, and how do you reintegrate into a society that either hated you for the fact that you existed or pretend you didn't exist? And especially if you don't have that core support group that, you know, you're of your family, assuming you have any friends alive. And that's another good point. So they're hated and they can quite rightly say, so so why do you hate me? What did I ever do that I wasn't told to do? There's that. And and the other thing is, while they're away at war, things move on and they, they find it hard to integrate back in. And if they don't have a family group, they end up like these people in Falkland Square end up back on the streets mm-hmm. or living on the streets rather. And it's just, it's shameful. Yeah, and shame on us as a society and double shame on the governments who didn't think these ones through. You know, they didn't do any of this, sec- what I call second order thinking. We're going to send these people over there. They're going to come back. 
Yes, what are we going to do with them then? Unfortunately, we live under a government in this country that every year has difficulty seeing winter come in. Because Game of Thrones sucked. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't want to end this on a downer, even though this is is a downbeat downbeat film. But let me just leave you with these three interesting facts. The original cut of the film was over three hours long. Stallone was so unimpressed when when he saw what had been done that him and his company tried to buy the rights of the film and never release it. Weren't allowed to do that. So he stepped in, did some editing and direction of his own and reduced it down to 95 minutes, which is why pretty much every Rambo film, I don't think any come in over 100 minutes, but we'll see as we go Now through. that's interesting because when I was watching it again yesterday, I thought the editing on this is not great. You know, some of the editing is very, very sloppy. And I was couldn't see the reason why, and now you've answered that question, because I actually noticed that the editing wasn't great. Okay. For me, of all the films, it's the one that stands up the most, but that's interesting. I'll go back and have another look at that then. One for Elijah. I stand by Goldsmith's score as being one of his best. The use of Dan Hill's song, It's a Long Road, which creeps into all of the films, I thought was great. Any standouts for you on that, Elijah? The main theme is incredible. He went a little bit lighter on the synth than a lot of films from that era, which there's there's nothing about synth that ages well. <laughs> well, I don't think so. <laughs> Not much. So the, the guitar theme, I think, really holds up, uh, not only you know sonically, but it's just a, it's a beautiful piece of music. And it, it can be used so with so much versatility, as we will see in um, the later films. Yeah, yes, certainly in this. The use of the solo trumpet is, I mean, there's some great action beats in it. The one where he steals the um, truck and is driving back to town is is wonderful. (laughs) But the solo trumpet for, for most of the themes is really, really good. And final point, Rambo, as named by David Morrell, was named after an apple, the Rambo apple. Good grief, I didn't know that. That's bizarre. As far as giving a character a name, that's a a unique one. I haven't heard of that one before. Yeah, no, no. (laughs) To finally sum up, it is interesting that this film was a success as it came at the end of the Vietnam veteran as a person with mental issues and possibly to be feared cycle. Politically, Reagan was in the White House and there was a positive energy going forward. The fact that this was a box office hit and is an action film that deals with real issues is very much to be commended. There is no happy ending for John Rambo, as we've said. He just survives, and that is a theme that runs through the entire series. Now, for me, it's the best of the series and still plays well 40 years later, though I take your point on editing, Graham. (laughs) Its message of forget the past at your peril is put across extremely well. However, that positive energy of the Reagan era that I just spoke about, will be very much in effect where the series goes from here. Any last words from anybody else? It's almost an anti-action film. Yes. Yeah. There's only one death in the entire movie. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's, you know, he throws a rock at a helicopter and the guy falls. That is the only person that dies. Yep. 
you know, there's a, there's shooting and there's explosions. It is really a whole lot more about Rambo's personal journey, you know, going back through this hell. But now that hell's you know become America instead of Vietnam. And I think it's there to make us understand this character because he hasn't really gone for all he's done at the end is he's unleashed all the feelings that are bottled up inside of him, but he's made us aware of them. Yeah. And I think that's, mm-hmm. that is really, really key. Okay. Yeah. It's, a, it's an excellent film. Yes, I agree. So I'm going to put two exits to this now because I've got a feeling that's one podcast all on its own. So that was the end of our discussion on First Blood. If you want to hear us discuss Rambo First Blood Part 2, please tune in to the next one. This brings us to the end of our look back at the life and political times of First Blood. I hope you agree that this has been a fascinating discussion, and if you have any thoughts or comments you would like to make about the show, please write to us at show at attheflix.co.uk. Next time we will discuss First Blood Part 2 and look at how Ronald Reagan's time in the White House was picked up by filmmakers. To make sure you never miss an episode of this podcast, please subscribe to At The Flicks at our website, attheflicks.uk. And if possible, please remember to rate and review At The Flicks wherever you get your podcasts. You can contact the team on Twitter or by email. Our contact details are also on our website at theflicks.uk. Thanks for listening.